From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. The number of global COVID-19 infections is approaching a half million. Both Italy and the U.S. are on track to surpass China. Spain's death toll is more than 4,000. Europe's and New York's healthcare systems are under tremendous strain. This hour of Air Talk will have the latest on what California's healthcare system can expect as coronavirus cases increase. We'll also find out what protections are now in place for renters of commercial and residential properties, as well as assistance to property owners unable to pay their mortgages. It's Air Talk right after NPR News here on KPCC. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Very good to have you with us. Hope, despite all that's going on in our world today, that you're getting some comfort from family and friends and being able to do your work if that's possible, either working from home or if you're in an essential service and providing it to the rest of us. We thank you. Those of you that are working in logistics and at supermarkets, drug stores, Obviously, healthcare providers who are driving trucks, bringing us goods. Uh, thank you. Thank you all for the very hard work that you're doing and whatever degree of risk you take to your health in doing that, we appreciate the sacrifice that you make on behalf of the rest of us. Well, COVID-19, of course, continues to spread rapidly in many countries. At the opening of the programming uh, program, I was talking about some of the distressing numbers coming from Europe here uh, in the United States, of course. Uh, we have a confirmed number of cases, over 69,000. And sobering news to report in Los Angeles County, mortality rate for the virus sitting at about 1%. Nationwide, the mortality rate about 1.5%. But we caution, of course, with testing being as limited as it is, it's difficult to get um a fully accurate handle on the lethality of COVID-19. As we're doing every day throughout the course of the spread of the pandemic, we're bringing in a noted healthcare expert, a physician, to talk with us about what we're learning about the, the coronavirus, as well as about the public health measures being taken to try and contain its spread. With us today from UC San Francisco Medical Center, infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine, Dr. Peter Chin. Hong. Dr. Chen Hong, thank you, sir, for being with us today. My pleasure, Larry. Let's talk, first of all, about the death rate from the coronavirus. Um, how, how accurate can that be given the limits of testing? I think it's probably, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's only, well, happy in one sense, because I think we fear that it will be higher than the 1%. And that's because, again, as you pointed out, we have very limited testing available. So we don't really know what the denominator is. So far, we have been doing our testing in a very reactive way, meaning when somebody is ill and they're hospitalized, we prioritize testing for them. In a real setting, to really get a good handle on mortality, you'd want to know, of course, everyone in the community and sample everyone in the community, and then you get a better idea of proportion. 
Let's talk about uh, medical centers across the country. Uh, you're as one of the leaders nationally, UCSF. Uh, and, of course, we've got everything from small rural hospitals that are trying to gear up to uh, mega medical centers like the one for which you work. Uh, where are we at in, in California's hospitals preparing for this, having the equipment they need, and the number of ICU beds to be able to handle the numbers expected to arrive? Well, I think we are very, very frightened about what might come to California. I think it's going to come. I'm not sure it will hopefully not be as steep as what's happening in the New York City surge. But I think even with a flattened curve that we hope with shelter in place, that we're not really prepared as adequately. So I think people are thinking about very creative options based even on what's happening in New York. So refitting ICU beds into you know, maybe sharing one ventilator with more than one patient, uh, retrofitting uh, operating rooms, which have ventilators in them, thinking about creative ways of providing care to as many people as possible. But also in a chilling way, I think based on the experience in Italy, we've also engaged with ethicists about, you know, making decisions of end of life care. Well, and, and what do you think about that? I, I know you're you're not a medical ethicist, but um, you and your colleagues may be called on, uh, as well as the institutions for which you work, to make these kinds of difficult decisions of rationing, whether ventilators or, or medication and the like. Do you think that age and um, prior physical frailty should be factored in to who gets a ventilator or who gets medication? I think these are really, really difficult questions, and it really speaks to the heart of who we as a society and what we value in life. I think, you know, we certainly would have to engage with patients uh, and their families. Patients may not be able to really communicate at this time. So I think it really, you know, bringing in a lot of stakeholders, decision makers on a family basis, as well as institutional realities would be the crux of what we need to have happen. I think there are ongoing discussions. I, I really, and I, as you pointed out, I'm not an ethicist um, and don't have expertise in that, but I know as a clinician, just in regular situations, it's really, really difficult. And I think what we, the, what we don't have in COVID is the luxury of time. I think in most clinical situations, you actually have time for patients and their families to come to a consensus about where to go in, in clinical care. When you have a rapid epidemic. And in New York, we know that in a shocking way that they have had a 40% increase in deaths in one day, you don't really have that luxury and time to really have everyone on board and um, have that consensus. So I think they're really difficult questions for California and something that we'll probably have to face in the near future. We're talking with Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist and professor at UC San Francisco Medical Center and the School of Medicine. Dr. Chin Hong, uh, there are a number of fine medical centers in the San Francisco Bay Area. I think of the one uh, that you work for as, as being the flagship. And so I'm just wondering, at a, a place like yours, a leading institution, how well equipped is your facility with ventilators, with masks, and protective wear for uh, those who are on the front lines there? I think it's, expect it's estimated that California in general is probably several fold short of having enough ventilators. We know that in New York, for example, uh, Governor Cuomo has called out to the president and leadership to 
give them additional ventilators. And that's really been um, a controversial point. On the ground here at our institution, again, we've been trying to amass as many uh, ventilators as possible. And I think people are working on that. But again, we feel a little bit pessimistic if we do get that surge. I think what's probably a more pressing need, as you pointed out in your last statement or question, is the need for PPE or personal protective equipment. I think we, in the last week or so, we've really felt an acute need. And I'm sure people in the audience have seen uh, images on social media and and on the media of of people doing very crazy things, I think, in the healthcare setting to try and um, address the shortfall of PPE. So using coffee filters as masks, using bandanas. Um, I think, you know, those images have been really horrific for me to see personally. Well, we, we in fact, had uh, a nurse uh, who's going into work who uh, contacted us yesterday after we did our daily Q&A with a physician, and, and uh, she wondered, using bandanas or using scarves, is that really safe? Is that provide much of any barrier against coronavirus? That's a great question, Larry. I think they do provide some protection, so it's definitely better than nothing. So if you think about how, going back to first principles, how is this infection really spread? It's really spread by a droplet. So someone coughs or sneezes on someone, and the drop is a little bit heavy, so it would fall between three, uh, uh, something within three feet or so. So the safe distance of six feet gives a little bit of cushion to allow the individual some safety from when that droplet would fall. So if you think about the bandana or the scarf, you know, it would stop that droplet from getting into what the virus is trying to get to, which is really the nose and the mouth and the mucosa of the nose and the mouth. So it would probably stop some of it, but certainly I wouldn't be confident that it will stop all of it. When we think in medicine about risk, it's not an absolute one or zero, but we think of a continuous risk. So I would say, you know, it probably will get us um, some of the way there, but certainly not all of the way there. So as a first responder healthcare provider who's taking care of patients who have active infection, I think it really behooves us to really think about using the best protection we have possible. After all, you do want to preserve this workforce to take care of the expected increase in numbers that we expect. We're talking with UC San Francisco Medical Center and School of Medicine professor Dr. Peter Cheng Hong. Uh, Dr. Chen Hong is infectious disease specialist and one of our daily guests that we're having from top institutions, leading experts in epidemiology and infectious disease to talk with us about COVID-19 itself, but also about the important um, public health measures that are being taken as well. If you have questions for Dr. Chen Hong, we're at 8 866-893-KPECC, 5722 Our AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, you can also tweet at AirTalk with your question or post it on our AirTalk Facebook page. JP in Lakewood posts on the page, I've recently heard from two different friends about avoiding uh, certain types of over-the-counter pain relievers. Uh, is there any truth to the stories? Should we stay away from these over-the-counter medications uh, like ibuprofen or Tylenol? Uh, And JP also, thanks for the coverage. JP, thank you very much. I I appreciate that. Dr. Chen Hong? Excellent question and something I've been a little bit enraged about over the last week because of conflicting information from the WHO. So this is how it happened. And 
this will be really interesting for the for the listeners to hear about. So what happened, and it again speaks to the power of social media in 2020. So what happened one week ago from Sunday was that the French Minister of Health tweeted that he was afraid that uh, ibuprofen would be, uh, people on ibuprofen were having worse outcomes if they had COVID infection as well. And that was based on a letter to the Lancet, which itself was based on a lot of anecdotes. And most disturbingly, was based on uh, fake news, on a a spurious uh, WhatsApp message link that was sent to a lot of people and circulated in Europe. At the end of the WhatsApp message, there was listed uh, a physician who was uh, an Irish member of the Irish Infectious Disease Society. And the the Irish Disease uh, Infectious Disease Society actually issued a statement saying that this person was actually not the real author of this text and had it taken down. But before that happened, it actually led to a series of events where after the French minister tweeted that WHO was um, concerned, they issued not a guideline, but a statement saying that they're worried about people taking ibuprofen. There was an uproar from the scientific community about lack of evidence and science behind that. And the next day, the WHO reversed its statement on the line. But what happened in that discussion and that series of events is that it led to a lot of uncertainty as what's been happening in general, the narrative of this epidemic or pandemic is that there's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of false statements. There's a lot of uh, news that probably isn't always right. And with that ibuprofen story, I think I knew of personal physicians here in the Bay Area who were telling patients, you know, get off ibuprofen because it might be worse. But actually, that's not true. WHO retracted the statement. Are, are you surprised the WHO sort of leaped to that? without? Because I, I think of them as, as uh, being more judicious. I was very shocked. I was very shocked. I think a lot of my colleagues and myself were disappointed. And um, again, we don't know what to believe sometimes. Actually, we, we have science, but again, with initial reports of complications or associations in this disease, I think it's really important for the audience to know that, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt, uh, particularly when it's something that's commonly used as ibuprofen. All right. We're talking with UCSF Professor of Medicine and Infectious Disease Specialist at the Medical Center there, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. We're at 866-893-KPECC. You can ask your question of Dr. Chin Hong. Joe from Culver City says, aside from our mouths, should we be worried about protecting our eyes as well? And should we be wearing gloves when we're out in the world? That's a great question and a question that I get asked a lot. So what's the most important? I think what's lost in all of the guidelines is what's the most important thing. Because I think when people give recommendations, including California, I think from a community perspective, we hear all in the same voice. So we hear about protecting our mouths, protecting our nose, protecting our eyes, cleaning surfaces, staying away from each other. Um, I think it's very difficult to understand what's the most important thing. And I always tell my medical students, if I'm on a desert island, what's, and I had one thing to do, what would I do? You know, if I'm coming in contact with, uh, and this is, the risk is, of course, different if you know that the person has COVID and you're next to them versus uh, if you, you're not sure. I would say as a healthcare provider, if I'm taking care of a patient with COVID, um, I'm going to 
prioritize protecting my nose and mouth. And that's why the mask is probably the number one thing. Secondarily, I'm going to protect my eyes because, again, the virus traveling on that droplet is going to look for a mucosal surface. It's really going to look for the nose or the mouth. There's a theoretical possibility that it's going to look and land on the eyes, but there isn't really great evidence of transmission from eyes. But nevertheless, I think given the biology, we are going to be cautious and, and protect those as well. If we're in close contact, say you're a caregiver at home with somebody with known infection, you probably would want to protect your nose, mouth with a mask, as well as your eyes by wearing a shield, or, or even if you don't have a shield, at least wearing glasses. So that's the other thing. The right. other guidance with surfaces is probably very secondary to the, the idea of protecting the nose and the mouth primarily. We're talking with physician Dr. Peter Chen Hong, UCSF Medical Center in San Francisco. Amina has a question. I'm, I'm guessing she's Muslim from the question she asked. Would wearing a full, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, niqab, offer protection? That's, uh, she describes the face cover, so only the eyes shows that you you seem uh, some uh, Muslim women, particularly in other countries, wearing. Dr. Chen Hong? Well, again, <clears throat> that's going to give you some protection because, again, the, it's, going, it's the same uh, idea as why wearing a bandana might give you some protection or a scarf. Um, that's because the, that cloth is going to probably trap that droplet before it gets to the mouth and the nose. The eyes being exposed, again, is a potential issue, but again, very, very small risk, if at all uh, possible. And that's only if you're coming in contact with somebody you know has COVID. Of course, with the lack of testing, we don't really know who has it and who doesn't have it in the community. In general, in, in clinical medicine, we think an infectious disease, we think that somebody who has full-blown symptoms are probably going to be a more efficient transmitter of infection if you're standing next to them. But to come back to that original question, if you're wearing the, the full garb with the eyes exposed, um, it sounds great because, in general because it's going to trap that droplet before it gets to the mouth and the nose. Maybe worry a little bit about the eyes, but again, these are sort of hypothetical situations. We'll continue our conversation with infectious disease specialist from UC San Francisco Medical Center and School of Medicine, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. We're taking your calls with your questions at 866-893-KPECC. Thanks to the helpfulness of medical professionals throughout California, we've been bringing you these extended Q&A sessions every day to try and get further clarity. One of the things that's helpful is each day we do incrementally, it's seems get just a little bit more clarity on COVID-19. But as we hear from our physicians daily, there's still a lot that we're trying to understand about the behavior of COVID-19. I just want to take a moment to remind you that as we've suspended full-on fundraising for our spring member drive, that we still need to raise a total of $1 million at KPCC to assure full funding for all of our employees so that we can continue to bring you this kind of public service journalism. Conversations with health experts. Later, we're going to be talking about the effects on renters of commercial and residential properties, um, mortgage help for uh, property owners, as everybody, all different levels being hit 
hit hard by the public health measures taken to try and control COVID-19. These kinds of stories that we bring you on KPCC require a crack production staff, which is just simply the best I've ever seen in this business. They are doing a wonderful, wonderful job. So please support the work that you hear on KPCC with your gift right now, 866-888-5722. We are 81% of the way toward reaching our million dollars during this spring fundraising period. We also, today and today only, have a $40,000 dollar-for-dollar match from a Claremont couple. They prefer their names not be shared. I know who they are, and they're wonderful people Thank you both. I appreciate it. This is very, very generous of you. Um, wonderful, long-time supportive couple based in Claremont. Your support will be matched dollar for dollar, 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. We have $36,000 of that match available. We don't want to leave a single dollar unmatched. This uh, tremendous uh, supportive couple from Claremont, every time that we have a need, they're there for us with their support. We're asking you right now, when the need is so great, when we still have, uh, what is that, 19% left to raise during this fundraising period that is so vital, asking you to step up as thousands of AirTalk listeners have over the past couple of weeks. It's just extraordinary. I see the numbers when I get off the air every day. And I just cannot thank you enough. It's a beautiful thing for me to see, and I appreciate you so much. 866-888-5722. Back in just one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. It's our daily segment talking with uh, a medical expert about COVID-19. Today, we're so pleased to have with us from UC San Francisco Medical Center and School of Medicine, Dr. Peter Chen Hong. His specialty is infectious disease. He's professor at UCSF. We're at 866 893 kpcc 866-893-5722. Deanna in Whittier, you're on Air Talk. Hi, um, I was wondering if there is a medication like an antihistamine where our bodies can slow down our own reaction to the pneumonia in our deep lungs. And I was wondering if there was uh, something that could help us so that we don't get pneumonia so fast and, and end up killing us over time. Thanks, Deanna. Dr. Chen Hong? That's a great question, Deanna. I think it also speaks to what can we do as citizens to help protect ourselves and to give ourselves the or give our bodies the best fighting chance with this infection. I think, um, unfortunately, we don't have enough evidence to to know what protective measures we can use in terms of medications, like you mentioned antihistamines or anything like that. But there are certain things that we can do, and and we have instituted in California. Um, like uh, the, with the shelter-in-place policy and social distancing. Uh, so no evidence for you know individual medications that you can buy in the pharmacy or Walgreens. But I would say that I think you want to stay as healthy as possible. I, I always counsel patients at this time not to smoke or to vape because in the studies we have so far, 
uh, those smokers, particularly in the Chinese data, have had a 15-fold higher of disease progression. So that's something you can actively do. And then I'll often, uh, I'll always tell viewers that there's the four S's that you can do to help get infection, uh, uh, stay away from infection, and that's sanitize. So, of course, washing your hands uh, or using hand sanitizer, wash your hands for at least 20 seconds. Um, the second S is going to be surfaces. So you want to clean surfaces because you can, like, touch a surface. The virus can live on a surface for three to four days. If you touch a surface and then touch your nose or your mouth, remember we talked about that droplets wanting to get into your nose or mouth, then you can probably get it. The third S is, of course, social distancing. So you want to stay away from people as much as possible with, within six feet of someone. And then the fourth S, of course, is stay home if you're sick. For those people who still have to work um, with our shelter-in-place policy, if you're feeling sick, don't go to work. Uh, stay home. Uh, we have a listener, Ava, in Westchester, wondering. She takes allergy medication regularly. Um, does does that depress the overall immune system if she's taking that medication? That's a great question. We don't think so far, based on our evidence of this infection or other infections in the same family that we have a lot of experience with, that taking uh, allergy medicines will actually depress the immune system or make you more susceptible to getting worse if you get infected. Jen, in Rosemead, I understand you're a nurse. You work in a hospital setting, is that right? Correct. Okay. Please, your question for Dr. Chen Hong. Hi, I'm curious if, let's say, the amount of PPE we have um, was not a factor. Should these patients who are rule out or confirmed COVID-19, should they be placed on airborne isolation? That's a great question. I think given the need, so the question is about if we had unlimited PPE or personal protective equipment, sh- should we put someone, everyone on airborne? So just for the background for the audience, there are two types of precautions we take when someone has a respiratory infection to keep ourselves safe. One is droplet precautions, and that's really wearing a simple surgical mask, like we talked about for most of this call so far. You want to trap the drop. The drop is heavy. It's going to fall within three feet of the person who's coughing, sneezing, etc. The next level up higher than droplet precautions is what we call airborne precautions. That's something that Jen is alluding to. And that's for infections like tuberculosis or measles. These are very, very small particles. They're like dandelions. When you blow a dandelion, you can see the dandelion uh, uh, particles like fly all across the room. And in that case, you need airborne protection, meaning that, you know, for example, if someone with measles were to stay in a room and then move out of the room and you walked into the same room, you could actually get measles. And because of those kinds of infections, we institute what we call airborne precautions. That, that requires a higher level of mask. People have probably heard about a mask called an N95 mask. It traps even very, very small particles. You'd also want to have a uh, filter in a room that will, uh, what we call reverse filtration, which will actually suck the air out rather than recirculating the air. With COVID-19, we don't think that we need airborne precautions or N95 masks unless you're doing an invasive medical procedure right next to the patient where you can, as it were to speak, uh, give the droplets superpowers. So if you intubate someone, give them a breathing tube, or you're doing a bronchoscopy where you're putting a camera inside the airways, 
that can generate very, very small droplets from the big droplets. And in those cases, we do recommend uh, N95 and airborne precautions. But for most intents and purposes, this coronavirus COVID, that causes COVID-19 is the same coronavirus that we've known and, and uh, know so well from causing the common cold. It's just a little bit different, but it acts in the same way in terms of traveling on that big drop. So we don't really recommend and we don't, and I really believe this, that you wouldn't need a N95 mask or um, airborne precautions unless you're doing up close and personal with a patient in the medical setting doing an invasive uh, procedure that can generate a lot of aerosol. Aerosol is like the liquid in a hairspray bottle. When you spray it, it generates that very, very small, fine particle. Jen, thank you very much, and also thank you for the work you're doing as a hospital nurse. We appreciate it. We're talking with UCSF professor and infectious disease specialist, Dr. Peter Chin Hong. Let's talk next with Arlene in Hollywood. You're on Air Talk. Yes, uh, thank you very much for this information. My question is this. If seniors, let's say three seniors who have been in isolation, can get together, is it we're not contagious, is it possible for us to um, keep each other company? So you're wondering if you've been isolated for 14 days, um, and so then presumably you're all virus-free. Could you physically be in the same place? Uh, Dr. Chen Hong? That's a great question. I would say that if the three seniors, you know, first of all, I must make a comment that loneliness is a narrative that we've been seeing in COVID-19 all over the world. And I'm really sort of very acutely aware of that and, and for me and for my patients, uh, because first of all, think about the fact that, you know, people, you know, because of the PPE and the fear and anxiety that people have around it, we're not really interacting with each other in, in normal situations anymore. And when people are sick in the hospital, we don't even allow visitors to come and see them. So I say I really have been very aware of people's need for company. And, uh, of course, nothing beats um to, you know, face-to-face contact, although we've been using a lot of electronic methods recently. So to answer, come back to the question about three seniors who have been in isolation for two weeks and, you know, haven't developed symptoms, you know, it's biologically is plaus- uh, possible that they can get together, although, you know, th- there have been some cases of <clears throat> incubation periods being a little bit more than two weeks, but I would say that's the exception rather than the rule. You are going to you know, take a small chance by that. But again, you know, you have to, on an individual level, weigh the risks and benefits of that. There's some things you can do, even if the three seniors get together, to mitigate risk. And those are the four S's we talked about. So maybe staying a little bit further apart from each other than you would normally if you can try that. Again, cleaning the surfaces, washing your hands frequently. Uh, Those are some of the individual measures you can take, even if you decide uh, on a personal level to get together with some of your friends who have been sort of like quarantined for two weeks when most of the disease would have happened if we think they were truly infected before then. Dr. Chin Hong, thank you so much for spending all this time with us this morning. We appreciate it. 
You're welcome. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist and professor of medicine at UCSF Medical Center with us on AirTalk. Coming up, we turn our attention to the plight of many renters of both residential and commercial properties uh, who have their income uh, totally cut off. How are they going to pay the rent? What sorts of protections are in place locally, statewide, and nationally? We'll also talk with landlords, property owners, who themselves may be in a jam with their tenants not paying rent. How do they pay their mortgage? on their properties. We'll talk about that coming up in just a couple of minutes. Just want to update you that we are working on raising a total during this spring fundraising period at KPCC of $1 million. We suspended our regular intensive, longer um, Uh, on-air requests for funding so that we can give you the kind of in-depth coverage of COVID-19, which is so important for all of us right now, and also for us having a a way to come together and to talk with each other about things of mutual concern or just mutual interest. Please support us right now when we have a $40,000 dollar-for-dollar match from a longtime, deeply supportive Claremont couple right there just waiting to fulfill. So every contribution you make, let's say you give $10 or $15 a month, it becomes $20 or $30 a month thanks to all the generous support from our Claremont resident couples, uh, couple uh, who support us. 866-888-5722, kpecc.org. And of course, if you're a leadership circle member and that you're in a financial position to make a $1,500 annual gift, that's like three grand right now to KPECC. 866-888-5722. We have 33 thousand dollars that is available for you to be able to fulfill thirty three thousand dollars uh that's available to be matched dollar for dollar eight six six eight 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 five seven two two we'll continue in just 90 seconds on air talk Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us wherever you're listening, whether you're working from home or off from home. Uh, if you're someone who's lost your job and filing for unemployment, you're in very good company. So many people, including many of our listeners, are in that circumstance. We are with you in spirit and we're here to provide you with whatever information we we think is helpful. We also are getting wonderful recommendations from listeners as to information that they'd like from us. So we're doing our best to try and, and, and serve what your need is, regardless of your circumstance right now. One of the hardest hit groups, of course, are renters right now, whether that's small business owners who are renting commercial properties and there is no business at this point, no, no uh, money that's coming in and simply no way to pay the rent or at least the full rent, or whether it's uh, residential renters concerned about being evicted um, who are, are not able to pay the rent because they've lost their jobs. And, uh, of course, eviction has um, critical uh, health vulnerability uh, even beyond the typical extreme stress of one losing his or her home. With us to talk about 
what protections are now in place at the local, state, and federal level is the executive director of Tenants Together, statewide coalition of local tenant organizations, Lupe Areola. Uh, Ms. Areola, thank you very much for being with us. Um, first of all, what uh, are is there a, a thorough freeze on people being evicted from their properties right now? Ms. Areola, are you there? Okay, we'll try and get her back. If you have questions for our guests, we're at 866-893-KPECC. That's 866-893-5722. Also with us is Senior Vice President uh, for the California Apartment Association's Los Angeles office, Fred Sutton. Uh, Mr. Sutton, thank you, sir, for joining us. What right now are the biggest concerns of your members? No, absolutely. These are unprecedented times, and, and we're all in this together and all have our, our, our roles to play to get through this. Um, I think housing providers' concerns are the same concerns that, that everybody has. Um, it's economic security. It's um, keeping ourselves safe and healthy and keeping all of our residents safe and healthy during these trying times. Um, housing providers have a huge role to play in this. And CAA, we've put out guidelines uh, um, to help a lot of our residents get through this. All right. And uh, what's being done for your your members who hold, you know, who are paying on large mortgages and all, and, and um, their rents are, are or are going to be uh, at least in part drying up? What sorts of measures do they have to help them handle those mortgages? Yeah, we're, we're incredibly concerned about that. We've earlier this week put out a call to our federal legislators and the state to take actions to help us uh, defer some of these mortgage payments and, and been asking that if we are having trouble making mortgage payments due to result of, of loss of income from our residents, that we're able to tap these onto the back of the mortgages. There are um, pieces of this that are coming down through the um, package that's coming down federally. Um, and there has also been some movement at the state level, particularly when it comes to one to four units of multifamily, but it needs to go much further. Uh, we need more relief uh, for mortgage deferral. Fred Sutton with us, California Apartment Association, Lupe Areola of Tenants Together. Ms. Areola, thank you for being with us. So uh, what sorts of protections are in place for residential tenants? Hi, Larry. Good morning. Um, thank you for having us. Um, so right now, there isn't any one set of protections at the state level um, that's specifically to address our current situation. Um, there are some, um, you know, in, in last year, um, the legislature did pass the Tenant Protection Act um, of 2019, which was AB 1482, that did provide some baseline um uh, rent cap, as well as um, some baseline just cost protections for um, certain units and um, for certain tenants. And so that's still in place. Um, there is currently also at the state level um, the price gouging provisions that are active um, under um, when once the governor uh, enacted an emergency order, an emergency, an emergency state of, of emergency, sorry, a state of emergency at the state level that also enacted some price gouging um, protections, which is great. Um, but in, uh, in terms of an eviction protection at the state level, um, that's uh, an eviction moratorium or a rent free 
pathways at the state level, that is not something that's currently in place and that's something that we have been uh, demanding of Governor Newsom. We have sent thousands of letters to him. Um, uh, Hundreds of organizations have banded together to send letters to him. Um, But so far, um, we have not received any any indication that he's going to do that. Many of the state's largest cities have done this on their own. Los Angeles, Long Beach, San Diego, San Francisco, San Jose. So it does seem on a city-by-city basis, many of them are implementing their own moratoriums on evictions. Yes, absolutely. So um, right now, definitely even even entire counties have done so. San Mateo County has um, enacted an eviction moratorium for their entire county, uh, which is great. We also have to keep in mind that there's over 500 cities in California. And so to expect every single city to do so, to pass an eviction moratorium, especially while most of them are not meeting in person, um, and is, is definitely something that uh, we want the to keep in mind and know that we need blanket protections that are going to apply to every city and every county um, and that people will be able to rely on during this time. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We're talking about the stressors on tenants as well as property owners uh, with the dramatic change in the economy as a result of efforts to control COVID-19. 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We have uh, listener Mike in Studio City says, I'm a small landlord. We have tenants saying they can't pay, but at this point, they're receiving benefits. They're able to recoup some of their losses, but it's really putting landlords in an unnecessary bind. Fred Sutton, you want to respond to Mike's point? Yeah, absolutely. Most all these eviction moratoriums that are being uh, put in um, have a, a clause for a deferral of this rent for up to six months. We're encouraging people to work on payment plans and, and really with these moratoriums, make sure that they're on a short fuse of 30 days to be able to review every 30 days. I think we're all very hopeful and hoping that, that this crisis ends as soon as possible, um, but we just need to stay in constant review and make sure that there's a mechanisms that uh, you're going to be able to uh, have relief uh, through this. And um, is, is the idea that the tenants would then have to, over a period of time, um, pay the, the rent that they had not paid previously? And how how is it proposed that that take place? Over what period of time would they repay the missing rent? Yeah, the, the most of these eviction moratoriums and the ones that we're understanding of, it's it's very narrowly tailored to non-payment of rent due to issues uh, arising from and loss of income from the the virus. And the deferral of rent um, that was put out in the guidelines by the governor is up to six months. Uh, And that seems to be reasonable for those that can document that and show that they are facing economic loss due to this to be able to work out a payment plan with the housing provider over the next few months. Okay, so that means repayment that they would become current within a six-month period after the moratorium ends. Correct. Okay. If we do that coupled with mortgage relief uh, for those uh, that are facing these issues as housing providers, 
Uh, I think that is a way forward for all of us to get through this. We're talking with the California Apartment Association Senior VP of the L.A. office, Fred Sutton. Also with us, Lupe Areola, Executive Director of Tenants Together, a statewide coalition of tenant organizations. If you'd like to talk with our guests about concerns you have either as a tenant or as a property owner, we're at 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in just one minute. On Air Talk. There's been an ongoing power struggle between Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva and the County Board of Supervisors. That's coming to a head on whether the sheriff should continue as the head of the county's emergency operations center. Obviously, that's a critical issue right now with uh, the efforts to stem COVID-19. So it's coming to a head. And next hour on Air Talk, you're going to be privy to uh, that uh, struggle right now. We're going to talk with Sheriff Villanueva. We'll also talk with L.A. County Supervisor Sheila Kuehl. They'll be joining us next hour on Air Talk, and uh, we'll hear what they have to say about this. We're talking right now about tenants and property owners and how to deal with the significant financial effects of COVID-19. We're talking with Lupe Areola of Tenants Together, Fred Sutton of the California Apartment Association. Dennis in Long Beach says, I'm a landlord. If tenants don't pay, they get to stay in their apartment. If we don't pay, we lose our building. Where are the protections for us? 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Lupe Areola, let me ask you about um, the idea of a six-month repayment of the outstanding rent. Uh, I would think that that's going to be extremely uh, uh, difficult for people who aren't able to pay rent right now because of the loss of income. Is it realistic they'd repay it in half a year? Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think, again, we're in unprecedented times when our economy has basically, you know, ground to a halt, where people are not being able to, where people are not making a wage, people have lost their jobs. And I think we have to come to grips with the fact that once this specific um, global pandemic is under control in the U.S., it's not going to be able to be back to business as normal um, the next day. It's going to take time for people to be able to get themselves back into, find a job potentially, get themselves back into work, um, be able to, um, you, you know, and so then, you know, Definitely, when people are having to go back to work with this debt around their their necks, um, and having only a certain amount of time to do to pay it back, um, you know, we feel definitely it. You know, it basically makes people start out already behind, basically, and so it's really important that we keep in mind that the guidelines that are being put out by our by the government, whether it be the state, federal, local, are really guidelines based on what they think is going to happen um, because we've never been in this position in recent history. And so um, those guidelines would are going to need to be changed, are going to need to be um, amended, and are going to have to be, um, you know, according to the, how the conditions change and according to how long it takes us to really get back to, um, you know, a quote-unquote, like a normal yeah. um, in a society. 
Uh, Governor Newsom uh, announced that he had negotiated with four large banks. Uh, no, these are only going to be a fraction of the mortgages, but to give a three-month grace period for landlords of residential property, that doesn't necessarily help out owners of commercial property. But uh, Fred Sutton, do you have any sense what percentage of mortgage uh, mortgages those four banks represent and whether that would be a template for other um mortgage lenders to to follow it's a lot and it's a great start but it definitely needs to be expanded to encompass all multifamily. that that mostly is going to cover one to four so if you have six units uh, i think you're going to find yourself uh, a struggling right away on getting forbearance so the the federal government needs to step in to push and expand something similar All right, 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Look forward to your questions for our guests. Uh, Has there been any talk of uh, property taxes being deferred, Fred Sutton? We've been asking the state, only the state can actually extend those uh, deadlines, and we've been asking the state for it. Um, the county tax collector for Los Angeles County and the assessor have already said that they will um, waive uh, late fees if it is documented that the loss is due to um, coronavirus and, and you can't make your payments due to the coronavirus. Uh, we have listener Greg who asks on Facebook, what documentation should landlords ask from tenants to document that tenants are in financial distress and can't pay their full rent? Fred? There's a, a variety of documentation that someone could put forward, such as a, a note from an employer that the restaurant's been closed, uh, medical bills, uh, you name it, uh, uh, something from the school district. Uh, there's a, a whole host of, of documentation that can pro- be provided that shows that you are suffering financially due to this. Lupe Areola of Tenants Together, um, if if someone gets evicted because they can't afford to pay their rent, what steps can they take to avoid being out on the street? So let me back up a little bit and just say that um, if any you know, any housing provider in terms of they're asking for documentation, they should also keep in mind that not everybody has a traditional employment um, and that not everybody has one job. So they might, you know, people need to be kind of definitely more flexible with the type of documentation that people can provide, um, as well as keeping in mind that some people are having to stay home because they have children to take care of or because they have someone who's ill because they themselves are ill. So just I think it's really important that we keep in mind there's a whole a whole gamut of reasons why people are losing wages and are losing jobs due to COVID. It's not just because the the business closed down. Um, So second, if anybody receives an eviction notice, it's really important that they first find out what kind of protections are available at their local, at state, and at the federal level. Um, you know, definitely right now receiving an eviction notice is going to be extremely, it, it's always stressful to receive an eviction notice. Right now, especially, it's going to feel ex- especially stressful it, because basically it could be the diff- difference between you sheltering in place and not having a shelter to, to not, not having a place to shelter in. And so um, right now it's really important that people first, you know, take a deep breath 
find out what kind of protections are at the local, state, and federal level, um, and also make sure that they don't move out. Um, at, they don't move out, and they definitely try to get some legal assessment locally. The majority of legal leader organizations are still um, taking clients and are still giving advice, but over the phone due to the shelter-in-place restrictions. Um, but people should definitely, definitely be informed and get informed before they take any make any decisions and before they take any steps to um, move out or to look for other housing. Anthony Chino says we need more financial support for landlords. My worry is that after a few months, my tenants may move out and I may not get anything at all. You can share your comments on the AirTalk page at kpcc.org. I want to thank our guests, Lupe Areola of Tenants Together and Fred Sutton of the California Apartment Association. I just want to share with you that Richard Reeves, the noted author and syndicated columnist, uh, many times a guest with us on Air Talk. He wrote for more than 50 years. He died today, uh, uh, actually yesterday, excuse me, in Los Angeles. He had been in failing health in recent years, wrote a number of books about American politics and history, and was on Air Talk uh, over a span of gosh, probably more than 25 years on this program, uh, talking about his books. Our condolences to his family. Again, Richard Reeves, syndicated columnist and author, died at the age of 83 yesterday in Los Angeles. Much more to come in the second hour on Air Talk. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So appreciate your being with us during these difficult times for our ongoing coverage of COVID-19, as well as the public health measures being taken to try and stem the spread of COVID-19. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk about Asian Americans and uh, concerns about them being targeted for how the virus is referred to, as well as its associations from its origins in Wuhan province, China. We're also going to be talking about what would have been the opening day of Major League Baseball. That, of course, not happening, but the triple play reconvenes to talk about life without baseball and um, what fills in, at least in some respects. But we begin with power struggle at the Hall of Administration, Los Angeles County, where a majority of the Board of Supervisors is looking at removing Sheriff Alex Villanueva from uh, the position of being head of the County Office of Emergency Services. With us to talk about it later will be Sheriff Villanueva, but right now we're joined by Los Angeles County Supervisor Sheila Kuehl, who I'm holding personally responsible for every time I wash my hands thinking of this little light of mine, thanks to your public service announcement. Supervisor Kuehl, thank you for joining us. Oh, Larry, I got the idea because I was, before we all started uh, having to stay home, I was at uh, a concert at UCLA, and we'd already been encouraged to wash our hands. And I was in the, you know, giant ladies' room, and somebody started singing "Happy Birthday to Me," which was the, you know, what we originally were doing. And everybody in the entire washroom was then singing it. And I thought, 
what a great thing, but this little light of mine is even better, a little bit longer, and really works. So now it's it's stuck in my head when I wash my hands. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, this effort to remove uh, the sheriff. W- when did this start? Uh, January of 2019. Uh, I think that the sheriff is somehow trying to make this sound like it started because of something he did in the pandemic. And that is absolutely inaccurate. And what's even worse is he knows it. Uh, in 2018, we had the huge Woolsey fire, as you know, the biggest fire L.A. County ever had. And so I convened a rather large and comprehensive task force in January of 2019 to really take in all the information about what had happened in the fire and to make recommendations that were to come back to the board at the end of 2019. They met all year, and one of the major recommendations was because of the lack of coordination uh, of the emergency services in the entire fire uh, time of the fire and then beyond, they recommended that we do what almost every other county in California has done, which is to uh, change an almost 70-year-old ordinance that put the sheriff in charge of all emergency operations to the Office of Emergency Management, which every county now has, because it's much broader than law enforcement. And we've certainly seen it in the pandemic. It's all the health departments. It's housing and homelessness. It's way beyond um, just law enforcement. So we've been working all year, and the sheriff uh, representatives were also engaged in transferring this authority, but it's because of the fire and how there was really a lack of coordination. And the sheriff, it doesn't matter who the sheriff is, the sheriff is not the right person to coordinate it. And so we actually have an emergency operations center up and running in the county that's been run by our Office of Emergency Management through this entire pandemic. So I, um, you know, I appreciate that Alex's feelings are hurt, but this is really not about him and not about anything he's done. This was way in the works for a while. So this wasn't in response to uh, the concerns that were expressed, uh, I believe, by county council when when he issued the order for gun stores to close, claiming they're non-essential, and the county came back with the legal opinion that he didn't have the authority to do that. This, this is not related to that? You know, this is the most progressive board that the county's ever had. Most of us would be very happy for gun, gun stores to be shut down. I don't think they're essential either, but we have to have the interpretation that fits the governor's definition. And that's why county council said under the governor's definition, they are. So I have no animus to the sheriff, you know, for trying to do that. That's just ridiculous. Um, I think he's really reaching, honestly, Larry, to try to continue the facade of this big argument between him and the supervisors. But the truth is we are doing the most responsible thing. It has nothing to do with personalities. We started doing this after the Woolsey fire. We're doing what over two thirds of all the counties have done and putting jurisdiction in our office of emergency management to oversee a much broader response of emergency services 
than was even thought of 75 years ago. Uh, you're you're saying that he's he's reaching to uh, portray this as as an ongoing battle, but there are issues of significant disagreement between the board and the sheriff going back to his rehiring of uh, sheriff's deputies and other personnel who had been let go for alleged malfeasance, uh, the subpoena power being given to the Civilian Oversight Commission, uh, which the sheriff did not want to have. There have been a number of of ongoing issues that have been uh, disputes between the board and the sheriff. Yes, but when you have legitimate disagreements, that is not a personality issue. The supervisors are really charged with running the county. And frankly, everyone who works for the county, including sheriff's deputies, are our personnel under the under the county. Uh, we were very concerned when he started hiring back people who had been let go because of overuse of violence, including Mendoyan. And I guess you know, Larry, yesterday the court sided with us that um, it's not the supervisors that fired Mendoyan. It's the, it's the Civil Service Commission that agreed and the sheriff put him back to work against the law. When the Civil Service Commission agrees with a dismissal, he can't just decide to hire the guy back. And that's why we went to court. It wasn't really about the sheriff or Mondoyan. It was about the principle of the Civil Service Commission being able to be the final word, which is the law. And so I think he's really personalizing it in a way that we don't. Back back to the issue of, of emergency operations. He, he's calling this a power grab. And you're looking at, at giving the Office of Emergency Management the authority to run the EOS. And, um, I mean, that is essentially putting the power under the board, right? Because emergency management reports to you folks. So it is a shift of power, isn't it? Uh, It is a shift of power on paper, but frankly, for the last 10 years, there has been an Office of Emergency Management, and they have been tasked with overseeing emergencies, uh, earthquakes, etc., because the old-fashioned use of the sheriff being in charge was not any longer sufficient to really accomplish what needed to be done. Baca didn't complain. Jim didn't complain. But Alex is now suddenly calling it a power grab, uh, not recognizing that there are emergency situations, and this pandemic is one of them. So Sheriff Jim McDonald, he was fine with making this shift? He didn't see it as a shift because the sheriff is still in charge of all law enforcement operations. Okay, but doesn't oversee the entire emergency operations center. So Jim McDonald was okay with with him not being the head of that. Well, he didn't take it personally if we had an office of emergency management that would oversee situations that were not about law enforcement. All right. It's been the case for several years, but, um, you know, I really think it, you guys are being played a little bit to get into this, uh, making it sound like a food fight or something, when we are trying to manage an emergent situation that is not a law enforcement emergency. What uh, is, is there going to be a vote on this next week of the board? Yes, on Tuesday. 
on Tuesday. All right. Supervisor Kuehl, thank you very much. I appreciate your being with us. Sheila Kuehl, Los Angeles County Supervisor, talking about the reasons why the board is looking at moving the Emergency Operations Center under the management of the Office of Emergency Management. Also with us is Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Sheriff, thank you for being with us. Uh, First of all, your response to uh, the supervisors, uh, how she is framing this shift. Well, everyone's entitled to their opinion, but not their own set of facts. That's for sure. This is about uh, public safety. It's not about politics. So to have the board entertain this motion when we have hospitals struggling to get masks and protective gear, or struggling to find shelter, this is the time they decide to, to put this on the table. It is beyond bizarre. Well, she's saying this goes back, though, well over a year. This has been in the works coming out of the review of a response to the Woolsey fire of 2018, and that this doesn't have to do with what's going on now with the coronavirus. Actually, if she had bothered to read her own report from the Woolsey fire, I've been preaching and advocating since day one. This is about a unified command. This is about a unified approach. And they, from day one, said, no, this is a health crisis and nothing else. So everyone else needs to basically stay out of, stay out of their own lanes. And it's been the Board of Supervisors with the Director of Public Health only that are making decisions, which is very weird because that is out of the incident command system, the structure. This is uh, the system that's used at the national level. It's called national incident management system the state level of the state emergency management system sems and at the county level is uses nim sems and incident command system there's four major components and they should be decision makers in this process and that is obviously health which has the the leading role in this but you also have fire as first responders you have law enforcement because who's going to enforce the orders from the health officer that falls on law enforcement and then you have countywide operations because they're in charge of providing the shelters and increasing the surge capacity, all these things. So they have these four major components in play, but the board wants to have only appointed people in charge of each group. And then when we're supposed to be making decisions and have a unified voice, there is no opposing points of view. Well, though, the Office of Emergency Management, isn't it? best position to coordinate between health, fire, law enforcement, and countywide operations, wouldn't that make more sense than just having one of those, law enforcement, be the point person for coordination? Well, actually, the Emergency Operations Bureau has been doing that job working with the Office of Emergency Management. Day in and day out, they've been doing that for decades. And I know she keeps harping back to, well, 65 years ago, well, we also had the earthquakes in uh, 1994. Uh, we had the riots in 1992. We had the fire storms in 93. We've had, uh, and then the Woolsey fire just last year, or uh, in 2018. We have had all these things, and every single one after the, the 9-11 and the fiasco in Katrina, when entities were not communicating well, either at the federal, state, local level, or within local government, they were not communicating well. They developed the incident command system. It is designed for everyone to come into the table and make an agreement and then have a unified voice. That's what a unified command is about. 
the board is trying to politicize it because they want only appointed people in that unified command. So uh, we heard from Supervisor Kuehl that there wasn't resistance to this from your two predecessors, Jim McDonald, Lee Baca, that uh, they saw this as, as, as not a problem. Do you disagree with that? That is absolute hogwash. That has always been a problem. This has always been a power grab. If you read through the entire Woolsey uh, document, you will not find anything which uh, supports uh, the supervisor's position. In fact, that document reiterates exactly my position. Okay. What, what is the rationale for a law enforcement agency being at the top of, of the emergency operations center? For example, in the city of Los Angeles, is the LAPD um, responsible for being the top manager of their emergency operations center? Well, they run a city emergency operations center. LAPD has their own command post, and how they do it specifically, I'm not, I'm not familiar with. But in a unified command, all of the components are involved, every single one. I'll give you a prime example of when this is done incorrectly, and this is in this case today. When you had the supervisor office and you had the director of health services make a decision on a health order and they tried to sell it like a soft set sell to the public and somehow expected that 10 million people are just going to snap their fingers, okay, that we're going to change the way we, we live we live our lives. And then that was on a Thursday. On Saturday, you had everybody at the, at the beach at spring break. And that was a very poor decision because public safety was not consulted, was not involved in the planning, in the rollout. And that is exactly why the incident command system involves everybody. It's- so how would, how would you or your representative have factored into the decision on that order and what unfolded at the beaches? Well, the order involves, that comes from the health officer. They make the determination because they are the subject matter experts in that regard. However, from making the order to executing it and enforcing it and making sure people are abiding by it, that becomes then, it falls on law enforcement because we're the only visible presence of government authority in the community. That becomes then our, our handle that figured out how, we, how best we can do that. And we work in conjunction with the health officers, with the countywide services. But I thought the original order didn't have an enforcement component in it. So wouldn't that have jumped the gun to consult with you about an enforcement of an order that didn't have any enforcement provision? Now, later on, Obviously, they're looking at at potential enforcement of this and punitive measures for people who uh, who don't follow the orders. But wouldn't it have been premature for them to talk with you about it before there there were any uh, punitive measures that were contemplated? Larry, the very first sentence in the order said it's a misdemeanor crime. Once you put that in the in the order, I mean, is it like a gee? I hope everyone listens to me. That's really well. Kind of was like that, wasn't it? I mean, because I don't think there was any talk about actually enforcing it as a crime. It's not going out there, running around chasing people and arresting people. That's no, that's far from that. It's using cooperation, using uh, what you would call as recognized authority figures to deliver a message and show the gravity of the situation, so you get the greatest amount of compliance in the community as possible at the very beginning. And by failing to do that, you got somewhat of a, 
yeah, halfway compliance. All right. You have all these congregations here and there. And that goes against the grain what the whole idea was to have the order in the first place. We're talking with Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. Uh, I want to go back to your order that you suspended that gun stores close as non-essential businesses. Uh, County Council saying you don't really have the authority to do that. This is the governor's call. And the governor then punted it back in his news conference, says I'm going to leave it to the sheriffs. So what's the next step on this? We've already released an order uh, for the county, for my office, and worked in consultation with the L.A. County Chiefs of Police Association. So for uh, county unincorporated areas in the 42 cities that we contract with for law enforcement services, the gun stores will remain closed except for law enforcement and public security organizations. For the city of Los Angeles, they've opted to close all gun stores, period. And I believe the city of Pasadena is going to follow uh, our model. And then every all the 45 individual uh, police departments, they're going to they'll be up to their chief of police in consultation with their city council. Are you concerned that with the Second Amendment right of someone to have a, a gun for personal protection, that since gun stores are the only place that people uh, can can get guns, legally at least, that um, this has the unintended consequence of potentially uh, pushing gun sales underground or that it infringes on the Second Amendment? doesn't infringe on the Second Amendment at all. The case law that's coming out of the Supreme Court is very clear that it's not an absolute right at any time to go and purchase a gun. There are restrictions in the manner which you you can purchase them, when you can purchase them, and who can purchase them. So we're we're on very solid ground. The governor made it made uh my my position very clear that is that is at, at the discretion of the sheriff of the county. So he deferred that to the fifty eight sheriffs to resolve. If the stores don't close, uh are you going to send deputies there to force a closure? We will ensure that they're complying with the order. We're talking with L.A. County Sheriff Alex Villanueva. I also wanted to talk about the prison population in Los Angeles County. Uh, Approximately how many prisoners have been released because of concerns over COVID-19? Approximately 2,000. Okay. And um, are are you concerned at all that uh, this could potentially lead to an increase in crime? Well, we're flooding the streets with uh, deputies now, now that we've redirected our resources to uh, patrol and custody. So um, they're literally running into each other on the streets right now, deputies. You have businesses that are closed. People are at home for the most part, so you're not going to get burglaries. We have a saturation patrol in all the areas that are closed to business in case people want to take advantage of the absence of the business owners. And uh, we've seen a drop in crime. We've seen a 10% drop in uh, violent crime across the county and a 6% drop in overall Part 1 crimes. They're all serious felonies. Sheriff Villanueva, thank you very much. We appreciate it. I hope we can check back with you in the next few days and get an update on what's happening uh, with your sheriff's deputies, any COVID-19 exposure, and also about uh, what the future holds with the county jail. Thank you very much. You got it.
Thank you, Sheriff L.A. County, Alex Villanueva, joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we're going to be talking about um, discriminatory actions against Asian American Angelinos. There have been concerns because COVID-19 originated in the Chinese province of Uh, Wuhan, uh, that there would be people targeted because of uh, them appearing Asian American and uh, also because uh, of the term Chinese virus that President Trump was using earlier to describe COVID-19. I'd like to hear from you if you are an Asian American Angelino, if you have perceived any difference in how you're treated as a result of COVID-19. We're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Back in one minute. We have $30,000 left to be matched in an extraordinarily generous challenge issued by a Claremont couple, supporters of KPCC. This their first dollar-for-dollar match, and we thank them so much. $40,000 that they put up. We have $30,000 that's still there for the rest of the day, but if you act right now, you're going to help make a strong show of support for AirTalk and the special coverage that we're bringing you today on COVID-19. 866 888 5722. That's 866-888-5722 to make your contribution. If you make a gift right now of $15 a month, that's like $30 a month to KPCC thanks to this generous $40,000 dollar for dollar match that's on right now. We thank you for your support. We've got to raise $1 million during this spring fundraising period. We suspended our regular in-depth fundraising so that we can just a couple times an hour bring this up to you, remind you of the need to be able to keep our current staffing, to be able to support you at the level that we had, and that requires an overall raising of $1 million. We are 81% of the way there, but but obviously still significant work to be done. And your gift right now with the doubling of that gift goes a long way toward closing that uh, outstanding dollar amount we need to raise. 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. Thank you so much. Also, we've learned that the Indianapolis 500 has been postponed from May 24th to August 23rd because of the coronavirus pandemic. Once again, the Indy 500 being delayed as a result of COVID-19. May 24th is the uh, now postponed date. The new date for the race will be August 23rd. And speaking of sports... We're going to convene the triple play later this hour and talk about on on what would have been the opening day for Major League Baseball, uh, what is uh, in store for sports. And also, we'll open up the phones for you to talk about if you're a huge sports fan as I am, what's filling that gap. That's coming up later this hour. But right now, we turn our attention to Asian American Angelinos. And whether you, uh, if you're Asian American listener to Wear Talk, are perceiving any difference in how you're treated as a result of COVID 19, the virus, of course, originating in Wuhan province in China, and uh, whether that is 
has fueled any sort of xenophobic or any sort of anti-Asian American response. 866-893-KPCC. With us, the executive director of the Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations, Robin Tomum. Thank you so much for being with us, Robin. Uh, Can you share with us, um, first of all, just what sorts of reports your office is receiving? Thank you, Larry. First, uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on your show. Um, you know, unfortunately, we are aware that along with the uh, all the work that all of us are doing to stop the spread of coronavirus, and I know that that's true for even us at the commission and the department that we're a part of, Workforce Development, Aging, and Community Services in L.A. County, everyone is working hard to, to make sure people have meals, that they have employment situations related, uh, dealt with, difficulties everyone is facing. Um, we're also uh, having to deal with, unfortunately, the fact that people are being targeted because they are Asian. Uh, we first became aware of this uh, in February, one of the first cases in our county that a middle school kid who was um, attacked after being called a coronavirus buyer, uh, carrier and, a, um, and told to go back to China, he was um, attacked by another student. And it was so bad that his parents took him to the hospital to make sure he was not, uh, he did not suffer any head injuries. And um, that what led to a meeting with the LAUSD superintendent. Since that time, through our partners, uh, which includes 211 LA, a key partner in receiving reports of hate, uh, but also the Asian Pacific Planning, uh, Planning Council, uh, APCON, um, along with the County Supervisor Hilda Solis and Public Health Department and others, we um, put out a call to uh, ask people to really be careful and thoughtful about the way they're responding to this uh, pandemic. We don't want the spread of the, of the virus to lead also to spread of hate and prejudice. Um, but unfortunately, one of our partners already received within the last seven days uh, 600 reports um, to them, to their website, about pandemic um, coronavirus hate and hostility. So we're very concerned. We're seeing uh, those reports as well. Um, and that, uh, you know, that's something that we need to, we feel is urgent, that we need to act on just as importantly as stopping the spread of coronavirus. We're talking with the executive director of the Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations, Robin Toma, with us on AirTalk. Again, I'm particularly asking Asian-American listeners to AirTalk whether you or someone close to you has experienced uh, some sort of uh, anti-Asian uh, epithets or, um, or, or uh, racial remarks that relate to COVID-19 and the fact that the virus originated in China. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We have uh, Yiji writing on the page, a friend of a co-worker's daughter was told to where she uh, go back to where she came from in a local grocery store. This was a couple of weeks ago. We live in the Santa Clarita Valley. The girl is Japanese-American. Uh, I don't know what I would do if someone told me to do that. I'm Chinese myself. The only thing I can say is I wish sometimes the president would simply stop 
talking. Uh, thank you, Larry, for providing the platform. Yiji, thank you very much. Uh, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Robin, I understand that the president is now backing away from using the term Chinese virus to refer to COVID-19. Um, you know, in the past, there have that that sort of uh, regional term has been used, Ebola. Um, there was the Asian flu, the term that was used. Spanish flu, of course, going back to the early 20th century. That has been a historic usage. Do we know if, if previously there have been similar sorts of um, using that identifier as a way to target people? Well, I do know that when we look back um, to the Ebola uh, virus, that there were reports of um, discrimination happening in different parts of the county uh, targeting African African immigrants. Um, we know that just historically, as uh, human societies, when we um, have a particular community that's been identified or something has happened that's very dramatic, such as 9 11, uh, the Pearl Harbor attack, you know, my family comes from. Uh, Japanese ancestry and my mother, my aunts and uncles, my grandparents were all imprisoned by the U.S. government solely because of being of Japanese ancestry. There is certainly the um, precedent in human history where we tend to act as humans in times of fear and crisis, uh, unfortunately relying upon stereotypes and pre-existing prejudices. So we really have to um, recognize that this part of our historic behavior and we have to uh, work to make sure that it doesn't take hold. Um, And that's something that, unfortunately, is not helped when you um, identify a virus with a particular nationality. After all, we have one of the largest Chinese populations in L.A. County uh, in in the country. And that's true about many Asian populations, Taiwanese, Filipino, Korean. And we know when people target people based on their race or their uh, national origin or ethnicity, they're not always careful to distinguish if they're actually from those countries. Um, in fact, the first uh, victim that we talked about earlier uh, was Korean. Didn't matter to the attacker. Uh, he went ahead and, and uh, hit him on the head anyways. Um, so this is the kind of behavior that we fear that it puts uh, the 1.5 million uh, Asian Americans that live in L.A. County at risk. And we need people to, to really um, make sure that they don't feed into that and don't uh, uh, act on prejudices, stereotyping, profiling people based on their race. Robin Toma, Los Angeles County Commission on Human Relations. Thank you, sir, for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Well, if, if I can, Larry, yeah. it's important that there's something that people can do about it. We need to know, uh, even though there have been some reports, we need to know that uh, what's happening out there. And I think that there is a lot more happening than we're aware of uh, based on other media reports. So I want to emphasize that people should call 211 uh, to report any act of hate. And uh, in addition to that, they can go to, uh, and that's 24 hours a day, seven days a week in multiple languages. But we also have a website. You can go online and just say Report Hate 211 LA or put in Stop AAPI Hate, stands for Asian American Pacific Islander Hate. Uh, If you put Stop AAPI Hate, you'll also get a website that allows you to uh, read the intake form in simplified and traditional Chinese as well as other languages. And it uh, provides just a few minutes, allows us to know what is happening out there in the community. So I really want to urge that people share that information, whether it's happening to you or a friend or a family member. Uh, We have to stay uh, aware and we have to also 
come from a place of compassion and caring when we respond to that. Are you concerned that as this is talked about, um, and perhaps not this segment, just because of the nature of the audience that we are speaking to, but are you concerned with sort of all, all the media reports about this, um, that it it makes it a bigger deal and that for those who are looking to get attention, it in and of itself helps spur these kinds of, of slurs and aggressiveness? Well, I don't think that we can avoid the fact that this is a natural pandemic we're facing and we need to take every step possible to um, stop the spread of of COVID-19. That is just uh, a necessity. I think where we can make a difference, though, is in the way we talk about it, to not associate it with people of Asian ancestry. After all, there's no evidence I'm aware of that here in L.A. County or in the United States that you're more likely to be a coronavirus carrier because you're Asian. People wear masks for a lot of reasons. They should make assumptions that if you're wearing a mask, that somehow you're more likely to have the virus. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that we can do as individuals and as uh, leaders in our communities to make sure that this uh, fear uh, and anxiety that is natural doesn't translate into the kind of hate and prejudice and stereotyping that we can fall prey to in these kinds of situations. Ms. So, yeah. Toma. Uh, thank you so much, Robin Thomas, Executive Director, L.A. County Commission on Human Relations. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Each day we look for something that's a little bit lighter to bring us together to talk about, as we all, of course, have high concerns about the spread of COVID-19. Coming up, we're going to be talking with the triple play on opening day for Major League Baseball, but of course no games because of the delay of the season. So we're going to be talking talking with Nick Roman, A. Martinez, coming up in just moments. But please take this moment to financially support AirTalk on KPECC. We're raising a total of a million dollars during this very important spring membership period. We suspended our typical, more extended on-air fundraising just a couple of times an hour. We're coming to you to ask for your financial support. Right now, we have $30,000 still available on a dollar-for-dollar match from a very generous couple in Claremont who are issuing this challenge to their fellow KPCC supporters. 866-888-5722. That's 866-888-5722 or kpcc.org. Thank you so much for your financial support, which has been wonderful each and every day here on Air Talk so that we can bring you the very latest on COVID-19 and the public health measures to help stem the spread of the coronavirus. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Let me hear. Take me out to the ball game. We're at uh, 
Wrigley Field. It is a tradition with every home game, a guest singing, take me out to the ball game. Was that really Vin Scully singing at Wrigley Field? Vin was the guest speaker there. That's terrific voice uh, singing as well as doing play-by-play. But of course, today we don't have opening day for Major League Baseball as the sport is delayed indefinitely. Every other sport is also on hiatus because of COVID-19. And nevertheless, on opening day, we bring together A. Martinez, the host of Take Two, Nick Roman of All Things Considered. And we're, of course, doing this remotely. Nick at his home studio in South Orange County. A, I don't know where, are, are you in Studio B? I'm right next to you, Larry. You are. I can't see you, but you're, I'm in A, you're in B. <laughs> so we get to, we get to talk. Um, a, you, you just shared um, yesterday, I believe it was, uh, you just, you know, wonderful uh, little piece about, you know, the greatest, um, you know, minor league player that baseball observers ever saw and a great performance. What are some of the things that you're looking at to take the place of live baseball we can't watch? Well, one of the things that uh, I saw uh, last weekend was that Ken Burns, uh, the documentarian, tweeted out that uh, he has made baseball available to stream on PC. PBS. So that occupied, uh, what, 12 hours of my, <laughs> my time? The great documentary. Yeah, scene. and I've been uh, re-watching that. And then uh, going and looking for old highlights. So, you know, I, I think that I do that anyway. I, I always look at uh, players that I grew up loving to uh, watch, uh, Ricky Henderson, uh, you know, all kinds of players. And I just watch YouTube highlights of them because i got to have some sports. I, yeah. I, I can't live without it completely. I, I have to admit, I, uh, I realized you know, that sports are a big part of my life. It's decompression for me. It takes me out of the concerns of all the other things I'm dealing with. And I can vicariously live through the experience of, of my home teams that I support. But, uh, Nick, I have to say, I, I think I underestimated what, uh, a stress relief valve it is. How are, how are you coping without having sports? You guys are talking so much right now. I'm trying to watch the Angels and the Yankees on the MLB Network. <laughs> Mike Trout's about to come up and hit a home run. So uh, that's know, very prescient of distracted. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing is is uh, MLB.com is now uh, streaming a bunch of really great games that have uh, gone on in the past. Um, right now, they're playing the Angel-Yankee game when Mike Trout went five for five, hit a couple of home runs on a Saturday night uh, a few years ago. Later on, at 3 o'clock, they're going to stream Kershaw's no hitter against the Colorado Rockies. So that helps a little bit if you can do that kind of thing. Um, I've also been looking through, uh, like A, looking on YouTube, and you can find um, audio of ball games, not necessarily famous ones, but just games from years ago. I found one from 1969, Dodgers and Cubs, uh, Drysdale and Ferguson Jenkins in uh, pitching in that one. So, you know, you can stream those things, and it can kind of fill in the gap. I wasn't but... born in 1969, by the way. I'm sure. <laughs> hey, I know you two I, were, but I I've got to say, I want you, I would enjoy a boxing match between those two guys because those are yeah. two of the most aggressive pitchers, um, you know, pitching against each other. Yeah, absolutely. And so so I'll, you can fill in with those kind of things. Um, I, when I get some time on air, I think in the next week or two, I might start also listing some, some baseball books that I just loved over the years. And, and that can fill the gap a little bit. Uh, if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, they've been doing a whole bunch of things, too. So, so there are things that you can watch and listen to and read 
but obviously it's it's not anything like the game live uh, right before you. Did Nick and A, did you ever go through a period in your youth where you just couldn't get enough baseball biographies? I mean, I, I I'm trying to think. I read every everybody it seemed who put out a biography because Ball Four started this whole um, series of books. Um, not all as revealing as that, but Nick, did you have that period? Absolutely. My mom was a, a constant uh, a visitor to the library in the city of Monrovia, where I grew up, and she routinely got, she found a series of baseball biographies that someone had written, and she would bring those back to me, and I read them all. Um, uh, Al Simmons, uh, in fact, I, I didn't even know how to say his first name. It's Aloysius, and I had to find <laughs> out. Al Simmons and Jimmy Fox and Mel Ott. Um, uh, all of these players from uh, decades before. So this is like in the middle 60s when I was reading these as a kid. And and that plus baseball cards and um, listening to Dodger games, and, and I was hooked. Hey, what about for you? I had a time where um, I was uh, reading a lot of uh, baseball books. That was called high school. Uh, I should have been <laughs> paying attention to the like, textbooks, which is why I struggled so well, much. I don't know. But it you was probably learned a lot. Boys from... of Summer, Summer of 49, all those books. Uh, <laughs> I replaced those books with uh, the textbooks that I should have been reading and would have made high school a lot easier, <laughs> probably. It's the triple play with no opening day, but uh, we're using the date to talk not just baseball, but sports generally. But I really want to hear from you how, if you're a big sports fan or baseball fan specifically, how are you still getting your fix of sports? 866-893-5722, 866-893-KPECC, the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can tweet at AirTalk or post on the AirTalk Facebook page. We'll be back in just one minute. Just so you can kind of picture how we're arrayed uh, as we're doing social distancing at KPCC, the studios in which A and I do our shows are identical. They're just mirror images of each other, and A and I are only about 30 feet apart, but uh, four walls between us uh, and totally separate doors to enter into uh, the large studio that each of us are in uh, with our teams each day doing our program. So uh, as the crow flies indoor, not far, but but we can't see each other. And of course, Nick Roman is uh, down uh, the interstate in South Orange County at his home studio from where he's doing All Things Considered for KPC. It's the triple play. We're talking baseball. I guess, is this like the freeway series, Nick? Can we call it that? Uh, the <laughs> yeah, freeway show? Yeah, I think that applies. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm uh, just up. I can get on the five and I can be at Angel Stadium in no time. I can go down the five. I can be uh, uh, down at Petco Park with the Padres in about an hour. And I can go up to see the Dodgers. So, yeah, I'm right in the middle. All right. Very good. Uh, let's talk with Mark in Glassell Park of Los Angeles. You're on Air Talk. How are you getting your baseball fix? I've been watching Japanese baseball about around maybe 12, maybe one in the morning on YouTube. And it's live and it's there's no one in the crowd. But boy, is it fun to watch. So they're still playing their major league season just with no no crowds. No crowds, and it's quiet, so you can hear the smack of the ball, and you can hear the 
the grunts of each player. It's it's really neat. Oh, that sounds I, great. I would like to know how he's doing that because actually I would watch that. <laughs> it's on YouTube. It's on YouTube and it's on the live section and it is there. You just have to uh, be willing to stay up and to watch it. Now, are you a YouTube TV <laughs> subscriber or you just have the YouTube everybody's got? You know, I'm not. I just go to it. Before that, I was watching these, the 14 day sumo matches. <laughs> so then baseball started coming in, so now I'm watching that. All right. Hey, Mark. Uh, so, uh, are you impressed with the level of play in the Japanese leagues? I am. They are professionals, they are really good. Yeah, well, we've certainly seen that with a number that have come over to play in the U.S. Uh, a, have you found the Japanese baseball channel yet? I no, but I've watched uh, Japanese uh, league baseball. It's anytime I can't watch Major League Baseball, I'll watch any baseball. It's like pizza; I'll eat any <laughs> slice, any topping. Just give it to me and let me consume it. So yes, I will watch uh, that all day long too. The thing is, though, you miss the cultural experience of the Japanese fans because uh, they are wild during the game. It's such a different experience than in the U.S. There is a different energy, that's for sure. I mean, they, they noisemakers. We used to have noisemakers at Dodger Stadium, remember, for a little while, and everyone got annoyed. Yeah, yeah, they are kind of a pain. But it is fun <laughs> It is fun to, to, to hear how into the games the Japanese crowds are uh, for their baseball. Mark, thanks very much. 866-893-KPECC or the Air Talk page, kpecc.org, where Pippi writes, there's some uh, auto races I can watch over and over again, one in particular the Indy 500, where Robbie Gordon ran out of fuel moments from crossing the finish line. Bill in the San Gabriel Valley um, brings up a great point. He said, I feel for college seniors who won't be able to, to play out their seasons, won't be able to play in the tournaments. Nick, this has been uh, so tough. I mean, some of the players are going to go on in basketball to the NBA or or uh, in baseball, you know, maybe if there is uh, the draft held, be drafted. But for a lot of the other players who aren't going to have professional careers, uh, tough to end their college uh, playing careers this way. Yeah, absolutely. And for I, I even feel for the high school kids, because for them, that is a really big deal uh, to be there and, and, and finish up your high school career, because more than likely those kids weren't going to play in college, uh, in college baseball. It, this is one of the hardest things I think that has ever happened in sports. <clears throat> Excuse me, in organized sports, and it's it's a shame. Um, I, I I wish that there could be something that could be done. Maybe the CIF can figure out some way to to do a quick summer tournament or something like that. But yeah, it, this is it's a it's a great 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 disappointment. Hey, Nick, are you, are you wearing a baseball cap uh, today, or will you be this afternoon? No, um, I, I'm I'm dressed up because you know, like I told you the other day, this is uh, it's formal. I I have to keep stay focused today, but I am streaming that that Angel game and Trout's about to come up. So. All right, very, so if <laughs> if I go to you and I don't hear anything, I'll know what's happening. You'll know exactly uh, what's going on. Kimbro in North Hollywood, you're on air talk with the Triple Play. How are you? There's no games, so I've been trying to keep busy by learning the rules of like hockey, baseball, football. And I, I want to be like uh, a rules aficionado. Cause you, you know, what's cool about watching the game and understanding what the rules are is uh, makes it that much more interesting. But you know, there's so many more rules that we don't know about. 
And uh, now is a good time to get caught up on your rule game. Yeah, that's a great idea, Kimbrough. I'm I'm always amazed when you watch some sort of a national sports telecast and some very sort of, you know, rare rules thing comes up and the commentator will just, well, actually, you know, give you the whole rule as though uh, he's, you know, just been spending the last three years memorizing the rule book. A, are, are you a rules nerd? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to be, right? I mean, when it, <laughs> something happens, you have to be able to understand it, process and explain it. And when I was doing Dodger Talk, that's one of the main questions I would get. Something would happen and I would have to be the, the person that processed it for the fan to understand uh, why it turned out the way it did. And one thing really quick on uh, college athletes, the NCAA has uh, given an extra year of eligibility for spring sport athletes. So, so baseball. baseball yeah. yeah, Basketball does not qualify, at least not yet. There is a push. Coaches want to do that. If the NCAA has any kind of heart at all, they uh, they would allow it. We'll see. All right. You're listening to Triple Play. A. Martinez there, Nick Roman, and me, Larry Mantle. And um, hopefully we're not just indulging ourselves, but it's a little break for you, too. And particularly if you're a sports fan, we're talking about the ways that we're trying to adapt to not having baseball and to not having other sports. This is typically a peak time of year with the second weekend of March Madness and college basketball. Just so many big events either happening during this week or soon to happen in the next couple of weeks. And all of that, of course, Put on hold. 866-893-KPCC. Astrogoth writes on the page, I'd like to offer my condolences on this opening day. Uh, please uh, hug to everyone. Tell them, as my dear mother used to say, this too shall pass. We appreciate it. And, you know, of course, we've got such serious things to be concerned with, with COVID-19 and the growing list of deaths associated with the coronavirus, the huge impact on our lives, the difficulty in connecting with some of our older family members who are now more isolated because of the public health measures. So we got really serious stuff to be concerned with and spend our time. And we're just trying to take a bit of that each day on Air Talk, uh, as with the triple play, uh, to talk about other aspects of our lives and how we're coping or how we're coming together. Nick, A, gentlemen, thank you so much. And we'll reconvene the triple play again soon, whether we got baseball to watch or not. Have a very good afternoon from all of us at AirTalk on KPCC. Thank you for your financial support. It's so vital to us by calling 866-888-5722. We have $29,000 that's ready to be matched with your support now. Thanks so much.